If you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Last week we sort of jumped out of the airplane at the end uh, with parachutes on. We didn't come to much of a landing. They were up on the mountaintop and there was a tremendous event going on there. It's called the Transfiguration. And it's a very dynamic moment in the Gospels. Uh, Mark has continued up to this point. And in Mark chapter 8, it's like we come to what's called the Continental Divide of the Gospel. And things change dramatically from this point where Peter recognizes Jesus, confesses him as the Messiah, the very Son of God. Uh, Jesus takes them up on this mountain, Peter, James, and John. But in the midst of it, he has changed his teaching dramatically. Can anyone tell me what is different about Jesus' teaching from this point at the last part of Mark chapter 8 on? What does Jesus begin to focus on? The death and resurrection, right. The suffering that must happen. He has not talked about that. Now he is focusing on Jerusalem. Uh, The idea now is the days are pending, they're coming. And if you've ever studied this whole Passion Week, they call it sometimes, this coming of Christ to Jerusalem, it is the most amazing event in history. It has been timed from the prophet Daniel on up to where Jesus must enter Jerusalem on this particular day and come to that cross on that particular Sabbath in all of history, of all of recorded history from when time began. It's the most amazing thing and the the purpose of it all. I can't hardly wait to get there and we will and I'll I won't move much more in that direction right now, but it's just exciting. But this is where Jesus is focused as we begin to look at these passages. If we back up a little bit into Mark chapter 9, around verse 8, uh, I'll add in from Matthew 17. Remember that we're looking at a passage that is highlighted in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It has tremendous significance. Matthew says, And when the disciples heard it, They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. And this is at the end of the transfiguration. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. We pick up in Mark. And suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore. But only Jesus with themselves. And we have this moment where Christ is alone with these three men. Even more quickly than this amazing experience had started, it's now a thing of the past. No more dazzling, white, glowing robe. And Jesus with this glorious, blazing face like the sun. The startling appearance of Old Testament legends like Moses and Elijah. It's a thing of the past. It's gone. It's history. Just them and Jesus. And this is how it would be from here on out. In fact... In fact, in just a few months, it's not even going to be them. It will be Jesus alone. Jesus alone carrying out His purpose that the Father had given Him. Nailed to the cross. Where He, the Lamb of God, could do only what He can. And that is to die in our place and pay the price of the sin of His people. Jesus alone. Only Jesus. And in verse 9 we read, Now... As they, the three disciples and Jesus, come down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they're coming back down off the mountain and they are coming with purpose. And Christ commands them to wait. And this command contained at least three things here. First of all, it contained a prohibition. A prohibition. Now, certainly... As they are coming down the mountain, as they descend, there is conversation going on. It's an encounter that left them on their faces in the dirt and fear. So certainly they're talking. But whatever has been said so far, Jesus makes one thing very, very clear. That prohibition is, tell this to no one. Tell this to no one. And then he gives a condition. Until the condition Until what I have been telling you takes place. There will come a time when this event, this transfiguration confirms who Christ is. And it confirms his resurrection. But it's not yet. His suffering and his death is as crucial as his victory over the grave. 
It, it is absolutely necessary that Jesus suffer and that he literally die. That he be completely dead is as important as the glorious resurrection from the grave. It must take place how, when, and where God the Father has determined. So do not tell anyone until the resurrection has taken place. And Jesus takes on a title here. And it's the title that he assumes of himself most often in the Gospels. I think someone has recorded, I think, 80 times, something like the word. He uses the Son of Man uh, as a title for himself. And it's not indicative of humanity, as many people will often think. It comes from the prophet Daniel. And Daniel wrote, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming from the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one which shall not be destroyed. This is not a claim of humanity. This is a claim, obviously, of deity, of eternality, of omnipotence. The Son of Man is a claim to be God. And that is what Jesus speaks of himself. So the disciples, it says, kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. So the trio here obeys what Jesus has told them, but it's sort of a conflicted response. You know, it's really impossible to put ourselves into the head of these disciples. How, how you would grasp the confusion over what they had just seen. What they had just heard, experienced. And what Jesus told them. They are grappling with, with this. And, and what does it really mean? And it doesn't make sense to them. Now it's not that resurrection from the dead is unknown. Uh, they believed in the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection, resurrection from the dead was a common hope. Of the Jewish nation. King Herod. Remember him. Certainly he believed in the resurrection from the dead. Because when Jesus began to minister. Well, who did he think he was? Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist. Risen from the dead. Resurrected. So resurrection was common. We even see uh, that the Pharisees. The religion leading Pharisees. They will argue on behalf of Paul. In a most unusual experience, they will argue for the resurrection of the dead against the Sadducee leaders. So the resurrection from the dead was not unknown. However, that was a broad resurrection from the dead. It was a general sense for the whole Jewish people. But for these apostles, these disciples, the thought that this brilliantly transfigured Son of God, who they just witnessed in breathtaking glory... The idea that he would soon be seized, that he would be brutally beaten and have to be suffering there and then dying on a cross and then raised literally from death, that cannot be. How could that possibly be? So Jesus explains. And he explains what has already taken place. Mark 9. 11 through 13. What has already taken place. And they asked him. Peter, James and John asked him saying. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why Elijah? Well these disciples knew. Old Testament prophecies. Perhaps Jesus had even taught them these things. One of them from Malachi chapter 3. It's a prophecy where it reads. Behold I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. One who would prepare the way before the Lord. Malachi 4 verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Elijah will be sent before the Lord actually comes, the Messiah. So, a natural question arises in the minds of the disciples. They know these prophecies. So they ask, if Jesus is claiming to be the prophesied Messiah, then where is this Elijah that Scripture requires to come first? 
And can't you imagine? These guys are keenly in on Elijah at this moment. They've just seen him. They've just heard him speak with Jesus. And now they know that this Elijah is supposed to come before the Messiah. And Jesus is speaking of himself as the Son of God, as the Messiah. So, so where is this Elijah? Where is he at? Then Jesus answered them. And he told them in verse 12, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man? That he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt or be rejected. And we have here God's suffering servant. It's not the kind of servant, it's not the kind of Messiah that the people expected, but it's the one whom God had prophesied all along. The suffering servant, verse 12. Jesus affirms here that the disciples are on the right track. You guys, you're going in the right direction here. Elijah is coming first, and he fulfills his role. But then Jesus challenges their thinking, and he brings up something they seem to have completely overlooked from the Old Testament prophecies. He asks them this question. How is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be despised? How could that be? If what was written of Elijah is true, won't the prophecies of the Messiah also be fulfilled? Prophecies of suffering, of humiliation, of rejection, of shame. Prophecies found in Isaiah 53. In Psalm 22. In Zechariah 12. Psalm 69. The scriptures were full of this declaration. Of what the Messiah must go through. But it escaped the notice of much of, of Judah. And certainly the apostles. They had not put these things together. And you see Jesus is constantly bringing this home. He is the master teacher. He speaks with authority like none other. But then he asks questions. And he brings truth out. And then he demonstrates this. And he draws this Old Testament truth out. And Jesus is constantly bringing home this idea. That he is going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. And how crucial this is for his purpose. Verse 13, but I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. And Matthew adds, likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And in a way, he's saying, you, you my friends, are in the midst of a story that has already begun. What they grasped about. What they have in a way of awareness of what, what is going on. It seems to be very shallow. And Jesus is trying to get them to see. All that we have hoped for as a nation. Is coming on your watch. You are right here. And it is unfolding. Don't misunderstand. John the Baptist was not a reincarnation of Elijah. When the priests and the Levites quizzed John directly on this point, they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? The prophet? And he answered, No. John the Baptist was not Elijah. But he had come as announced in the spirit and role of Elijah. Who makes this clear? Absolutely clear? The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord made John's purpose clear when he spoke to John's father, Zacharias, explaining the son that he was about to have, which was a, a tremendous miracle. Zacharias and his wife were past any childbearing age. And God promises in this child, hear the word of the Lord as spoken through this angel of the Lord. Verse 11 from Luke chapter 1. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, 
even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. There you have it. The angel of the Lord is announcing this John the Baptist will be here in the spirit and the power of Elijah just as he came and just as now the apostles are beginning to understand. You see both Elijah and John the Baptist were men of boldness and courage. They would speak whatever God put them on their hearts no matter the cost, no matter where they were. Both would stand in opposition to weak kings with power thirsty dominant wives. Both would be faithful to their Lord God. You see, Peter, James, and John are now watching the prophecies of old. They're beginning to come into focus all around them. God is opening their eyes. A commentator by the name of Edwards wrote this. He said, The disciples are not in fellowship with Jesus because of their knowledge, virtue, or holiness. They are in fellowship solely because of Jesus' sovereign call. And they remain in fellowship only because of his faithfulness to them. These guys weren't the sharpest knives in the drawer. That's not why Jesus picked them. They weren't the most educated of all those throughout Judah at that time. He picked them up off the beach, most of them as they were fishing. Another while he was tending to his tax collection business, which he had no business doing. These were not the guys you would have recruited if you were anybody but Jesus. But Jesus called them and they came and God formed them into his men. Jesus and these three disciples, they've just had the highest mountaintop experience of a lifetime. The highest mountaintop of experiences, literally. Jesus was glorified in brilliance, supernatural holiness in ways that really defy human description. We saw how that was try, they were trying to describe that, each of the uh, writers of the gospel. The Old Testament heroes, Elijah and Moses, they had appeared and they'd spoken with Christ. As these three disciples looked on in shock. And they fell to the ground in terror. God's glowing Shekinah glory cloud had surrounded them all. And the voice of the Father God had resounded. Declaring his love and pleasure in his son. That's where they've been. But now it's back to the valley. Back to the valley. Verse 14. And when he came to the disciples... Jesus saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. So they return with purpose. But at ground level, it is utter chaos. We have chaos at ground level. The mix, verses 14 and 15, we see here we have James, Peter, John, and Jesus and they're snapped out of the spiritual high of supernatural transfiguration of Christ. And they're greeted by a riotous mix of sounds, crowds, and emotions here at the bottom of the mountain. This frenzy includes the disciples, first of all. Nine of them, the ones that had been left there. And they have remained in the valley. Their faithfulness and rep representation of Christ, however, is not going very well at all. We have the great multitude. Crowds of several hundred, even thousands, were gathering anywhere that Jesus was thought to be going. Jesus' demonstration of healing disease, giving sight to the blind, restoring all kinds of disability, delivering from demons, raising the dead to life, and teaching about God in ways that no one had ever taught in history. Naturally, this created an upheaval of public popularity far and wide. People everywhere came to hear this man. And then we have the scribes. These Pharisees were the highly trained experts in the law and the traditions of Judaism. Many times they had confronted Jesus, hoping to trap him, trick him into mistakes, discredit him, prove that he's not from God, prove that he was from Satan. But now ultimately what do they want to accomplish? What do they want to do with Jesus at this point? The scribes and the Pharisees. They want to kill him. That's what they are after. They are after his blood. They don't just want to win the argument. They have never been able to even come close. 
Now their only hope is somehow we have to, have to kill him. Mountaintop experiences and the valleys. We, we all go through these. And, and Sherry and I have gone through them many times. And we have grown to call them the Elijah factor. Or the Elijah experience. You know Elijah. He utterly defeated 450 prophets of Baal. He sees the altar that he had prepared and soaked with water. With a brief prayer and in faith. Spoon! The whole thing disappears in blazing fire. Even the stones. And then we find him shortly thereafter in a cave. Depressed, isolated, discouraged. Moses on Mount Sinai. He's up there in the glorious splendor of an encounter with the living God. God gives him his law. He comes down to that mountain. And he faces rebellious and riotous Israel engulfed in idolatry. Mountaintop to the valley. Jesus at his baptism. Remember there at that point the Father God proclaims audibly his love for him. The Spirit of God descends upon him and anoints him. And then he is taken immediately by that spirit and driven into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and is tempted in spiritual battle with Satan himself. The highs to the lows. We go through them all the time. And, and you know, whether it's a, a time when a sermon went well or evangelism went well or a family event really seemed to click and then comes Monday or Tuesday and you're just, ah, and things go wrong at work and, and you don't control your temper or something is a grave disappointment to you from somebody you loved. Things just go like that. And that is happening here in some ways with Jesus. It was life in the Old Testament and New Testament. And it is very much life today. High moments of excitement and spiritual strength. Confidence in our walk with God. Followed by times of testing, trials, the weakness and disappointment. And I'd say that is the lot for those three men who come down off of that mountain. And Jesus asks the scribes, as all this is going on, he comes up to them and he says, what are you discussing with them? But there's a purpose that's going to rise past that quickly. Jesus steps into the argument between the disciples and the scribes. Now the, descri the scribes never fared well in arguments with Jesus. But they are apparently having a little better success against the disciples. But before the scribes and before the disciples can answer, can reply to Jesus, a desperate voice cries out from the crowd, Teacher, I brought you my son. He has a mute spirit. The man crying out is a father. He has brought his son who is in desperate straits. The father intended to come directly to Jesus, but so far he's only met with the disciples. And the son, he is a boy with a mute spirit. The NIV describes the spirit as having robbed this boy of speech. And we're not simply talking about an unfortunate physical disability. But this is a demonic spirit, an evil spirit. And it's later described in verse 25 as a foul or an unclean or an impure spirit. And then in verse 25... It is revealed that this demonic spirit has not only robbed the boy of speech, but it's also made him deaf. The deafness may have likely been a significant part of why he could not speak. And this spirit has sealed this son off from two crucial forms of communication. In many ways he is isolated. He has little contact in communication with the outside world. And here are the details of the suffering that the son endured. Verse 18. Look carefully. And look carefully because we're going to talk about it. Wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. NASB says, it slams him down. It is violent. It tears him, says the King James. Strong's defines it as it breaks, it wrecks, it cracks him. It lacerates, it shatters him. And when he hits the ground, he begins to foam at the mouth. 
And then his teeth, he gnashes his teeth, he grinds his teeth, and he becomes stiff, rigid as a board. Luke 9, 39 adds, only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. And that word means to tear him. It means to convulse him. Again, Strong said to crush completely, to shatter and break him to shivers. That is what happens to this boy. And in addition to this evil spirit's maiming the boy, this spirit is resilient. The disciples have had no impact on this demon. The man says, So I spoke to your, to your disciples that they should cast it out. But they could not, said the man. Does that seem a bit odd? You know, we might assume that the disciples should have been able to expel this spirit. In Mark chapter 3 we read, Then he, Jesus, appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sickness, and to cast out demons. Then by Mark 6, a few chapters later, these disciples actually go out and do what Jesus empowered them to. Reading there in verse 12 in chapter 6. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons. And anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. But that is not the case today. So far the unclean spirit is a victor. Jesus answered him and said, Oh, foolish generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And we see the compassionate Savior. Look at yourself. Look at yourself. Jesus' expression calls those hearing his voice to wake up and critically look at their faith, or in this case, their very lack of faith. He is not asking the question in exasperation as if he cannot believe they are so faithless. He, cannot, he wonders if they will ever truly believe in him. No, he knows. He knows when that time will come. And he knows what lies ahead and it, what it will take to grow and solidify their faith. But they do not. They, particularly the disciples are fumbling and bumbling along and they're witnessing the most amazing miracles in history and they're hearing the greatest prophet and teacher ever to walk the earth. And yet from moment to moment they fear and despair and fail in the tests. As I am quite sure I would have also. Just a week or so earlier Jesus had said to them, Do you not yet perceive nor understand is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take, take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said, Seven. So he said to them, How is it you do not understand? Now, it's about an even split between Bible scholars as to whom Jesus is specifically speaking to here. Some believe Jesus is speaking to the crowds, but not the disciples. Others say his statement is aimed at the disciples, but not the crowds. Still others see his target as the disciples, this crowd, and the scribes. And I think it's the whole bunch of them. I really do, and, and here's why. I said, the disciples certainly have had countless opportunities to witness firsthand the supernatural power of God in Christ, yet they seem to be powerless. The crowds, although their motives are mixed and misplaced the, for political reasons, entertainment, to watch the next great miracle, and even plain old free food, they have seen Jesus heal and deliver many, many times. And then we have the scribes. They're admitted enemies of Jesus. But they have had to so often eat their words as they watch Jesus do things they never imagined possible and leave them dumbfounded in every trap they tried to set for him. Yet all three groups have forgotten, failed, or refused to believe in Jesus. 
Nevertheless, Jesus commands, bring him to me. Bring him to me. And then they brought to him, brought him to him. And when he saw him, look what happens. Immediately, the spirit convulsed the son. And Luke says, as he was still coming. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. Why? The book of Hebrews, verse 4, 13, reads, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The piercing light of Christ, the piercing sight sees every evil spirit immediately and completely and fully exposes the demon of darkness to the light of God. He saw it as if it was standing there in plain sight. He knew it and the demon knew him. Every time in the earthly ministry of Jesus, evil spirits instantly, instantly recognized him and reacted strongly. And this demon does so as violently as any ever had. Please read carefully. The actual pain and anguish of this son. Pay close attention to it. Why? Because Mark details it four times. It must be vividly important for us to grasp what is actually happening here. The father describes it twice. First in verse 18 and again in verse 22. And we actually witness the demon's assault when the son is brought near to Jesus here in verse 20. And then in verse 26, the Spirit gives a final death blow to the Son when Jesus commands the Spirit out of the boy. The suffering is intense, violent, and it is driven by evil. So Jesus asked his Father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said from childhood, and often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. God reaches in. God reaches into the life of this man. Jesus humbly asks the father a question. We know Jesus knew the answer. And Jesus knew the father. There are situations today much similar to this. He knew the father's sleepless long nights. He knew the endless days of anguish. The constant fear for the life of the son. Matthew reports that the boy was also epileptic. Which involves massive seizures. This son however was not suffering only from the debilitating effects of epilepsy. epilepsy, But also under a ruthless demonic spirit. With the vilest intention. The unclean spirit would throw this son into a cistern or a pond or a lake. Or even into an open fire pit in an attempt to kill him, to destroy him. This broken hearted father had lived in the torment of fear, exhaustion and sorrow ever since the demon had entered that boy in his young childhood. Jesus humbly enters into the father's world of years of hardship and frustration. And just a slight aside. There we know that in, in our culture, in our existence now, many of these kind of things, whether they are demonic or whether they are organically or physical dis- difficulties like autism, epilepsy, are the burdens of many, many parents. Where they have sleepless nights because of the sounds echoing through endlessly. I spoke with a friend uh, Thursday night, last Thursday. And he told me about a good friend of his at work who, whose son is 18 now and just yells through the night and the other children try to, to get along. And they're exhausted. This man is exhausted. This has been endless. The cries, the fears, the, the physical responses of being thrown to the ground. Uh, that's why I think Mark wants us to see it four times. This man is suffering and his son is suffering. You know what else? Luke points out that this was the man's only son. This was his precious only boy. And there's something very special about that. In prophecy about the coming Jesus, Zechariah in the Old Testament 
drives home the significance of the only son when he writes this. He says, yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This makes the weight of the father even heavier. And the father then desperately says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You know, the father, the father has assumed that the failure of the disciples reflects a limit to their leader, Jesus. He had hoped for the best, but so far he has been sorely disappointed. His son remains in the clutches of the demon and the disciples, the disciples having failed to cast out the demon, they're now over here arguing with a bunch of religious experts. Why did he even bother to come to this mess? How irrelevant is Jesus? You ever hear that? I hear it all the time. I don't need that. I'm fine without that. It hasn't helped me. I've been frustrated. These disciples had frustrated this man. But Jesus enters into his life. His son is forgotten. The hope of deliverance is gone. But remember the setting. Remember the setting clearly here. The demon has done what? He has now just displayed flagrant abuse of the boy right in front of the father and in front of Jesus. So far no help or hope had come. What the father pleads for is help. And it's this word boyeteo. It literally means to run to the aid of one who cries for help. That's what he's saying. Run to the aid of one who cries for help. He's begging Jesus. Run to our aid. If you remember no other detail from this passage this morning. Remember that word. And use it. Boyeteo. To run to the aid of one who cries for help. That is what Jesus does. The father's faith is weak. But still he looks to Jesus and he asks. Faith to believe. Verse 23. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now the oldest manuscripts here omit the first believe. And it actually reads, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Now this is where we wish there was an ancient DVD recorder on the scene when Jesus spoke. I would love to hear how he said this. Because it can be read in, in several different ways. Uh, if you can. As a statement aimed at the Father. Turning the focus from whether Jesus has the power to the Father. Saying to the Father. If you can Father. Or. If you can. Like, our, like he's in some ways sarcastically mocking the Father who would dare to raise such a question of whether Jesus had the power. Or, if you can, doubting the Father's belief that Jesus has such power. Different ways you can play with that and I don't want to get it wrong and I don't know exactly how it is. But Jesus knew the Father's faith. And Jesus was not a mocker either. And I think I think, and it's based upon the manner in which Jesus ministers than in which he has been interacting with his Father that it sounded more like this. If you can. Simply a calm, measured statement affirming the Father's hopeful plea. Almost like an echo. If you can. And then moving to the power of faith in Jesus. If you can. All things are possible to him who believes. And immediately what does the father do? The father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The father had arrived with a demon-possessed son and a measure of faith. And that faith actually had dwindled. In honest confession, the father cries out to Christ to give him what he does not have. And that is a legitimate plea. And that is what many of us in here have plead, plead, pled with God for. Even in the last six months. We have had those moments. But we did not have the faith. But we had the faith. But we didn't have the faith. We knew that he was our only source. But we didn't really grasp. Whether he would be the source enough for us. And it is okay. To cry out for what we do not have. I hope we learn that from this. This man is honest. 
And he is crying out for faith. Faith comes from Christ. Faith is completed and made mature through Christ. He is the source. Hebrews 12, 2. It secures that confidence. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The author, the creator, the beginner, and the finisher, the completer of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is where it begins. That is where it's completed. Edwards wrote, True faith is, true faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has and when he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Christ. You see, we cannot amass faith. We cannot collect enough confidence and belief to get there. We must go to the author and finisher of our faith and beg for more. Plead for more. He will supply. Never place your faith in faith. Never place your faith in faith. Faith to believe is a vain, circular reasoning. Living powerful faith must be gained from the author of faith. Faith in Him, Jesus Christ, is never vain. Place your faith there. Not in trying to conjure up greater faith. Not in trying to convince yourself of something perhaps you don't believe but wish you did. Go to Christ and beg for that faith. Allow Him to supply you. And He will. Sproul wrote, It is, it is reasonable and rational to trust God always. Indeed, nothing is more irrational than not to trust God. Because God is perfectly trustworthy. He has never broken a promise, and He never will. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. The NIV paints it this way, that the foul spirit literally shrieked as it violently convulsed the sun. And we read, he became as one dead. So the many said, he is dead. Delivered from death. With complete authority, Jesus commands and the evil spirit obeys. It has no choice. It must obey the creator who is the ruler of the universe even though that Creator is veiled in a human body at that very moment in time. He had no choice. When His Creator commands, He must obey. This unclean spirit gave what appeared to be a final death blow to the Son. That's what it looked like. Indeed, most of those witnessing this demon's horrible attack thought the unclean spirit had finally accomplished his goal of destroying that boy. It is the darkest moment but it's not indicative of what is going on. He had destroyed him. He had destroyed him, not just anywhere. He destroyed him right in the face of the Son of God. Check, but no checkmate. He had not. Jesus, just as he took the synagogue ruler, Jairus' little girl, remember in Mark 5, he took this little boy's hand the son's hand and lifted him up and he arose. And it's, it's almost so subtle uh, it, the glory of it escapes us. Jesus took him, the son by the hand, lifted him up and he arose. Christ holds the final victory every time. Lane wrote, His, maj His majesty becomes most visible when human resources have become exhausted. His majesty becomes most visible when human resources have become exhausted. And how many times do we throw all our resources, this, 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 at an issue? And it does nothing. And when Jesus moves, we see Him in glory. We trust Him more deeply. And we know that He truly is our only hope.
Then the lesson of faith in the last two verses, we have a misplaced confidence. Verse 28, And when he had come out into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And this happens often in the, in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus goes into this house with his disciples and they sort of have a, a meeting afterwards to cover what has just been going on and, and get some private questions, some Q&A. And that's what's happening here. Why could we not cast it out? Matthew 17 then records a little bit longer answer. Jesus says, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Is it the size of faith? What, is he, what do we learn here? It's not, is it? Mustard seed was the smallest seed used for agricultural purposes in Judah at that time. He's not saying you've got to get bigger faith. We see that all the time in, in Word of Faith ministries, special ministries. Learn to, to pray with faith. Learn to pra- fa- fast and pray and, and take on these new ministries. It's not the size of the faith. It is who the faith is in. It's a mustard seed. It's tiny. But the one it's in is unlimited in his power, in his love, in his knowledge, his wisdom. And we are his sons and daughters. The seed of a mustard, that small. It appears that over a short period of time, however, the disciples had drifted away from a complete dependence among Christ. That had given them the very power of Christ to minister because they were fully upon him. Now they seem to have the assumption of either one ecstatic faith, a power that once exercised and always existed, and was at their command, and, and the, we struggle with that. We get to a point and we, and we kind of put it on cruise, or we stay at that level as if this is going to last, and it never does. You, there is no such thing as a static faith, or even more foolishly, a confidence that they now possess power even without Christ. One of the commentators wrote, The strength of our faith can never be put on automatic pilot. When we face a formidable foe, it is not enough simply to depend on the reservoir of faith in our souls. We have to get on our knees, then we have to plead with God. We must be doing that continually, constantly. Uh, it's... We like to think we'll have spiritual moments and those will get us through to the next, the next plateau perhaps. But no, we must be completely, constantly leaning on the only hope that we have. He is our strength. We need to be like that deer that comes to the water, thirsty and ready to take from God. We cannot live on yesterday's faith. And then we have the necessity of prayer. Verse 29. So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And fasting is another one of those phrases that doesn't seem to be in the earlier documents. Uh, It was really, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. And when it says this kind, genos, it means a particular generation or a stock. Likely, and I think we'd probably agree with this, there's no category of demon that does not require prayer to be cast out. This kind seems to mean the expelling of this kind of a being, a demonic spirit. Spiritual victory over evil spirits requires a complete dependence upon Christ, exercised through fervent prayer. We must be fervent in prayer for every battle. Previous success, wrote Lane, in expelling demons provided no guarantee of continued power. Rather, the power of God must be asked for on each occasion in radical reliance upon His ability alone. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we depend upon Christ and Him alone? How do we exercise faith, the mustard seed faith in this great God? Sproul wrote, Staying close to the Word, Listening to the promises of our Redeemer and opening my heart to Him are the things that kill unbelief and build a powerful faith. That does not let me down in the midst of affliction. You know, if there was like a five-step thing to do, 
or there was a, uh, this particular uh, system that would get us there. You could write a book and, and sell a million. But it's much more simpler than that. We need to call upon Christ daily. We need to live for Him and look to Him for our hope. We need to cry out to Him who is the author and finisher of our faith. Live for Him. Know Him. You must be in this Word. You must be in this Word constantly. Read it. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. Let it fill your heart and your soul so that you think in the way that God thinks. So that you rely upon the things that the disciples learned to rely upon, that Christ relied upon in prayer. Probably no one spent as much time in prayer as Christ did. Read, study, to show yourself approved. A workman who does not be, need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing this word. Understanding it. And spend much time in prayer. Make it happen. It is not going to happen naturally because God starts to develop this passion that you just can't help but pray. If that does happen, great. But I've, I really haven't seen that. It goes against our fleshly nature to spend time with our God, our Creator. But when we do, the rewards are, are immeasurable. And He draws us to Him. When we give Him time, He blesses us immensely. Come to Christ and grow in faith. Lastly, I just want to remind us of this Father. This word, boyeteo, help. When you feel like it's all gone and you are completely without hope, call out to him who will run to the aid of one who cries for help. He will do it. And then cry, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We, we see these disciples and I identify with those men more and more. Lord, I just so easily distracted from my living God who has saved me. Lord, please draw each of us to you. Please grant us faith. Grant us a growing faith that we look to you more and more constantly. That we see you as you are and we worship you throughout our day. Lord, I, that is a difficult thing. I know there are, are mothers with a handful of children and, and teaching them and taking care of the home and caring for their husbands and the duties there. We know that there are men that are working 60, 70 hours a week. We know that all of us tend to move away from you in a drift. Lord, please pull us to you. Draw us near to you. Make our time for you to, to count, to draw us in, into deeper faith. Father, I thank you for the brothers and sisters here. We ask that you would use this church as a light in this city, that we would proclaim the gospel Clearly and boldly, lovingly, with the word of God. Thank you for your scriptures this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.